Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through his word. Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. We're in part 4 of our series, That's Just Great. Today's message, Our Great Savior. Romans chapter 5. While you're turning there, let me ask you, can you remember a time when you got lost? Maybe missed a turn on a detour or wandered off the path in the woods or accidentally took an exit off the freeway and couldn't find a ramp back on or GPS sent you out into the middle of nowhere. In the summer of 2022, Christy and I led a group of travelers to Scotland and England for a Baptist heritage tour. Our last stop was London, where we spent three days. Now, our first evening there, we had some free time, so several of us took a cab over to West End to see a play. Uh, The cab took forever in the London traffic, and the fare was outrageous, so we decided to take the subway back via the London Underground, more commonly known as the Tube. It's a quicker, more efficient way to travel there. The only problem is that uh, we got off at the wrong station, though we didn't realize it at the time. Our GPS app took us to the address of the hotel where we found a locked, empty, darkened building. Spooky, right? Kind of Twilight Zone-ish. Come to find out that the tour company had published the hotel's old address prior to its moving to a new location. Oh, wonderful. And here we are in the heart of a foreign city of 9 million people. It's 11 p.m. at night, wandering through strange neighborhoods, clueless as to which direction to go. Now, fortunately, we were able to call the tour company and talk to our tour rep, Rowena. Oh, terribly sorry, love. And we were able to get the updated address. Now, we still had an extra hour of walking through London at night, but we got to the hotel just before midnight. And the whole experience was um, frustrating, or frustrating, as the British would say. But imagine the frustration of a life without purpose, directionless. Imagine the darkness, the fear, the separation, the hopelessness of being spiritually lost. But it doesn't have to be that way. As we're going to see in Romans 5, we still have hope because of Christ. In fact, the big idea behind this week's study is simply this, that God offers us hope and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Now, you may recall from last week's study that the Apostle Paul hadn't yet been to Rome, but intended to visit Rome on his way to preaching in Spain. The book of Romans introduced him to the Christians in Rome and spelled out his theology in preparation for that intended visit. Having demonstrated that all people need salvation, as we saw last week in chapter 3, Paul now examines the origin and nature of salvation in chapter 5, where we discover three key truths about life in Jesus Christ. Truth number one, God's love is affirmed through Christ's death. Look at verse 6. Paul says, for while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, in these first few verses, there's three things that I want you to note. First of all, that we were helpless. I mean, Paul says it right off the bat in verse 6, that we were helpless, and he's right. As we discovered in last week's study, there's not a person alive with the power to save themselves, neither then in the first century or now in the 21st. But thankfully, God had a plan. Verse 6 says, at the appointed moment, Christ died for us. Now, interesting choice of words here, though. God provided the salvation sinners needed at the appointed moment. Now, here Paul uses a Greek word, kairos, for time. That means the especially appropriate moment. Kairos points to an opportune moment when the time is ripe. So you see, God's plan to save sinful humanity through Jesus was not an accident or a divine afterthought. God didn't send Jesus because God was somehow surprised that humans had screwed up. Salvation through Jesus was God's eternal plan of redemption. And Jesus came on the scene at just the right time because God's timing is perfect. But uh, beyond what these verses tell us about God's timing, what do they teach us about God's character? Well, first and foremost, that God loves us even when we don't deserve it. Uh, that God is powerful and sovereign, able to solve problems that we can't. That God deals with sin in a way that we can't, in a way we might not ever even think of. Now, Paul notes three kinds of people in these verses. First of all, he mentions the just person. Rarely will someone die for a just person, Paul says. But using the word just, you know, by using that, Paul's He's not using a theological term at this point, but simply describing a person that others see as morally upright in his or her conduct. Then he also mentions the good person. Now, in this context, the good person is generous, kind, loving toward others. And while the just person, person rather, appears to never do anything wrong, the good person is simply someone everyone likes to be around. So it's conceivable that someone might possibly die for that kind of person. But here's the problem. Yes, the kind of heroism Paul mentions in verse 7 might motivate someone to die for a good person. And while people might think of many of us as just or good, well, at least according to the world's definition, we're still what? Well, we're still sinners. And that's the third type of person that Paul mentions in these first few verses, the sinner. The ones Jesus died for are neither upright nor good in God's eyes. They're corrupted by sin. Christ died for sinners, and only unmerited grace and unconditional love can drive someone to die for someone like that. So we see in verse 6 that we were helpless. But we also see that we were ungodly. Now, what does Paul mean in verse 6 when he says we're ungodly? Well, a sinner is ungodly in the sense of not knowing the true God in a meaningful way. Now, a lot of people in Paul's day were religious, but they worshipped pagan gods rather than the true God. 
They weren't related to God in the right way because they didn't have a saving knowledge of Jesus. Now, some people think that sincere belief is all you really need in this life. Well, if that's what you believe and, and you believe it with your whole heart, well, then that's okay. News alert. There's a lot of sincere people in the world who are sincerely wrong. Now, being a sincere follower of other so-called gods or, or just living a good life, as defined by human standards, it simply isn't enough to reconcile mankind to a holy God. Only unmerited grace and unconditional love can do that. You see, God's perfect timing didn't mean sending Jesus to earth after we humans cleaned ourselves up, got our act together. God knew that was never going to happen. God's timing was such that Jesus died for us while we were still mired in the pit of sin. See, apart from Jesus, we're all buried in that pit, dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, powerless to fix our sin problem. Yet God acted on our behalf when we couldn't. Jesus died for the helpless, for the ungodly, and for the sinners. He died for us because not only were we helpless and ungodly, oh, but get this, we are loved. And in dying on the cross, Jesus presented us the ultimate proof of God's love. God's love for us is affirmed through Christ's death. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that comes through loud and clear here in verses 6 through 8. But as we move on to verse 9, we'll see exactly what was accomplished by Jesus' sacrifice. Here, Paul shows us that, number two, God's righteousness is afforded through Christ's blood. God's righteousness is afforded through Christ's blood. Look at verse 9. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. Okay, now there's two things to notice from verse 9. First of all, we are declared righteous. Jesus bore the brunt of God's wrath, paid the price of our sin, so that we could know peace with him. Paul says we've been declared righteous by his blood. Well, this is one of his favorite word pictures or analogies for salvation in his letters. And in fact, some of your English translations are going to say justified by his blood. Okay, so a quick review from last week's message. What does the word justified mean? Well, this is where Paul's word picture comes through more clearly. The picture of courtroom proceedings. See, the word justified is a legal term referring to being set right by God's irrevocable verdict. It destroys any charge of guilt against God's elect. So if we're justified, it means that even though we've sinned, we've been declared righteous by a holy God. When I'm justified before God, it's just as if I'd never sinned against God. And Christ's blood made that possible, blood that he shed on our behalf so that by our faith in him, we have the righteousness of Jesus. That when God the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, God the Son. So we're declared righteous and, get this, we are free from wrath. 
we see that word wrath used at the end of verse 9. So how do we explain God's wrath to somebody who's maybe reading this verse for the first time? Well, simply put, God's wrath is his holy disapproval and disappointment with human sin. God's righteous anger is not the same as human anger because human anger is usually self-centered. And sometimes his wrathful judgment against sin is destruction, like we see with Sodom. But oftentimes that judgment is also God allowing us to suffer the consequences of our own choices, which is self-destruction. Now, we see a good example of that in Romans chapter 1, where those who chose to worship the creation instead of the creator, who exchanged the truth for a lie, were given over to shameful desires, Paul says, and all of the consequences that came with it. Yes, they will face ultimate judgment, but by being allowed to pursue a life apart from God, they've created a more intimate immediate form of judgment for themselves, which is another facet of God's wrath. But God had a plan to save us from his wrath towards sin. That's why the apostle John wrote in 1 John 4.10 that love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, the Greek word for atoning sacrifice is helasmos. Now, from that word helasmos, we get this fancy $10 preacher word, propitiation. Well, propitiation means the appeasement of wrath and gaining the goodwill of an offended person. So, in this context, helasmos is the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. Oh, but that's not a very popular subject. God's wrath? Oh, let's not talk about God's wrath because God's a God of love and mercy. Yeah, but he's also a God of justice. Really? What does God have to be mad about? Well, hello, sin. In fact, we talked about that extensively in last week's message. Oh, but you know, if we want to be a megachurch, we can't talk about God's wrath against sin or call for repentance. That's not attractive to people. We've got to be attractive. <laughs> you know, it's not about us. But you, you want to know who is attractive? The one who willingly died in our place. The one who satisfied God's wrath against sin. It's all about him. Now, you'll see this word propitiation only four times in the New Testament, depending on your English translation. Most of your English Bibles will translate helasmos as atoning sacrifice instead of propitiation. All right, well, let's talk about that for a sec. What's an atoning sacrifice? Well, when you atone for something, you make amends or reparation for some wrong that's been committed. Jesus sacrificed himself to atone, to pay the price for your sin and mine. He stood in our place. He paid our price willingly. Now, soldiers who served in eastern Afghanistan will tell you that children there would often make money from recycling used shell casings they found lying on roads. On one occasion, as a military convoy headed down one particular road, several soldiers jumped out of their vehicles to move the children out of the way before the heavy trucks came along. Well, after the children were on the side of the road, 
One young girl ran back to pick up another shell casing. And unfortunately, she ran out in front of a 16-ton armored truck. National Guard Sergeant Dennis Weichel saw this and ran to get her out of the way. And he got her to safety, but not before he was hit by the truck. And the 29-year-old from Rhode Island died just weeks after arriving in Afghanistan. See, Dennis didn't think twice about taking that little girl's place. He suffered the consequences for her choice. And that is so very much like what Christ did for us. Only we're not innocent children. Because of our sin, the wrath of God was barreling down on us. But Christ came as our rescuer. He absorbed the full brunt of our punishment. And in doing so, He gave us not only the chance to see our sins forgiven, but also the gift of hope. And by our acceptance, by faith, of what Christ did, we're made righteous, justified in God's eyes. So we've seen that God's love is affirmed through Christ's death. Then we saw that God's righteousness is afforded through Christ's blood. But there's the third idea that Paul is communicating to us, that, number three, God's reconciliation is accomplished through Christ's work. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. Okay, now there's four things I want you to note here in verses 10 and 11. The first one, that we were enemies of God. Okay, so how were we enemies of God the Father? Well, because we're in a sinful condition, which means we're in rebellion, whether it's either active or passive rebellion, we're in rebellion against who God is. Before receiving God's forgiveness by faith, we're all in rebellion against God. Now, remember that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus, God the Son, said, anyone who is not with me is against me. Well, the people Jesus confronted with his message had to make a choice about him. The Savior, Jesus the Messiah, had come, and he was presenting his kingdom to the people. And they had to choose. If they were for him, well, they're going to have to change their mind. In fact, the the word is repent. Change their mind about how they could gain entrance into the kingdom. See, they'd have to recognize that they could only receive eternal life by faith, inheriting the righteousness of Jesus, not by their obedience to the law of Moses or any amount of good works. So Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. You see, it's either one or the other. In fact, everyone is in one of two groups, the right or the left, sheep or the goats, saved, lost, saints and the ains, those with him, those against him, those receiving, those rejecting, those crowning, those crucifying, those on the road to heaven and those on the road to hell. But thanks to Jesus' work, Every man, woman, and child has a choice to be his enemy or his friend. You have the freedom to decide. You can, but you must make a choice. 
Now, the Bible says in Revelation 22:17, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. Well, you know what the living water is? Or more to the point, who the living water is? It's Jesus. And whosoever desires may come to him. So you decide. Oh, but you're not free to not decide. In fact, everyone must decide what to do with Jesus. You know, choosing not to decide, well, that is a decision. By saying, I don't want to be made right with you now, God, you might as well be saying, I don't ever want to. So we were enemies of God, but note something else that Paul says here. He says, we are reconciled to God. Okay, so what does Paul mean in verse 10 when he says we're reconciled to God? Well, if you look it up in the dictionary, the dictionary definition will say to restore friendly relations between. See, reconciliation becomes necessary when two people or two groups have become at odds with each other. The, uh, the end of the spear tells the story of five missionaries who gave their lives to reach the violent Waldani tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. The missionaries were eager to reach the Waldani people and were soon able to make contact with them. But the five men were later speared to death by a tribal war party. Among them, a man named Nate Saint. Well, in 1994, his son Steve went to Ecuador and visited the site where the wreckage of their missionary plane was. And there he encountered a man named Minkayani who told Steve, that he was the one who had speared his father. Minkayani then picked up his own spear and pointed it at himself, inviting Steve to avenge his father. Steve grabbed the spear and held it to Minkayani's chest, tempted to run him through. But after a moment of weeping, he said, no one took my father's life. He gave it and he threw down the spear. Later, Steve would write, my father lost his life at the end of the spear, and it was at the end of the spear that Minkayani and I found ours. It's true that my dad and his four friends were not given the privilege of watching their children and grandchildren grow up, but Minkayani is a grandfather. He's not only a grandfather to his own children, he's now a grandfather to mine. My dad would have liked that. Through the years, people could always identify with our loss, but they could never imagine the way in which we would experience gain. Now, as amazing a story of reconciliation as that is, the story of mankind's reconciliation to God is so much more powerful and eternally significant. For us, Reconciliation with God means that God restored the harmony that originally existed between himself and mankind before we sinned and destroyed the fellowship that we were created to have with God and became his enemies. In this case, it, it wasn't a spear that made this possible, but a cross. So being reconciled means that we're offered relationship with God through faith in Christ. But what are we offered in a relationship with Christ? Well, there's a couple of key things 
First of all, eternal life with him in heaven. Jesus said in John 3:16 that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave gave his one and only son. And through our faith in him, we're guaranteed not to perish but to live with him in everlasting life in heaven. But not only abundant or eternal life in heaven, but abundant life with him on earth. John 10, 10, Jesus said that I'm come that they may have life and have it more abundant. Life eternal. Which, interestingly, begins the moment you say yes to Jesus. Life abundant, life eternal. Reminds me of the old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. I love this lyric pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. So if God has demonstrated his love to us through Jesus' death, well, then because we've been reconciled, we are no longer his enemies because of our sinful condition. We are saved from the penalty of sin because he died in our place. Oh, and we're also saved from the power of sin in our daily lives. We're given a new life. There's a new power at work in our lives, the power of the Holy Spirit. And eventually in heaven, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. So, how should the reality of being reconciled to God be reflected in our lives? It's very simple. We rejoice in God. It's reflected with joy and gratitude. Paul stressed that Christians should rejoice in response to salvation, that joy should be the experience of all Christians, regardless of circumstances. I mean, he clearly saw a role for rejoicing in the Christian life. You see that most clearly in the book of Philippians. Philippians 3.1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul stressed a sense of gratitude as the proper response to God's work on our behalf. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So there's another way that our lives reflect the reality of reconciliation. Yes, we rejoice and we reach out to others. We reach out to others. We reflect the reality of our reconciliation with God by helping others to be reconciled. We actively seek out those who need to be rescued. In fact, we Christians have been entrusted with this very task. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20 that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled. To God. All right then, as a believer, what are some ways that you can respond to the hope of salvation 
that's available to all people. How do you put this to work in your life? Well, let me give you three starting points, three action steps to take. First of all, prepare. Prepare your testimony. Write your testimony. Write out the story of your own salvation. And as you do, focus on three questions. Number one, what was your life like before salvation? Number two, how did you come to know Jesus? And number three, what is your life like now since you've been saved? So the first action step is to prepare. Prepare your testimony. Here's the second one. Pray. Pray for people. Pray for people without the Lord in their lives. Pray for the opportunity to share your testimony with someone who needs to hear it. So pray. Pray for people. And then here's the third action step. Present. Present Jesus. Commit to sharing the truth of the gospel with at least one person before the next time you gather together at church with the church family. Oh, and invite people. Take steps to connect with people. Invite them to your small group or to worship next Sunday. Remember, 86% of people who visit a church do so because they were invited by a friend. Grow your church with ease. E-A-S-E. Everyone ask someone every day. See, Paul paints a pretty clear before and after picture for us in these verses. First of all, we see we were ungodly and powerless, yet Christ died for us. That's in verses 6 and 7. We see that we were sinners, yet God demonstrated his love for us in verses 8 and 9. We see that we were enemies, yet God reconciled and saved us in verses 10 and 11. And that brings us full circle to the big idea that God offers us hope and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive by faith God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. And for more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.